You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends who are tech savvy and inquisitive and very persistent. We had a little deal today that we did. So all those adjectives really fit. So Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. I'm married to my tech savvy, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. My tech savvy is purely by accident and a requirement because nobody else in my life would hear that description and go, oh yeah, that's totally her. Like I can hear some of my friends going, what? Who? You got this wrong uh, about that description. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the thing we didn't think about when we started the podcast is you guys know way more than I do about it, but that we'd have to learn a little bit about how to like download stuff. And so we had a little little issue earlier today, but we've got it all fixed now. And so we were just talking about, before we started all this, our favorite places to shop online. So uh, Carrie, if you had like an hour to yourself with no interruption, you're lounging around your pool or, or some pool or in Hawaii somewhere on a beach and you could shop online, where would you shop? So I am not an inherently good shopper. Really? Um, Wow. Because I love having pretty clothes and I love looking nice and all those things, but it is not a natural skill for me. Like I consider myself, if I am bathed and dressed, then (laughs) that is the victory. That in and of itself is definitely a victory. We all have days like that. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is a life like that. You know, my face is washed. My hair is clean. My clothes are clean. I am presentable. But um, so that means that I fall into patterns of, I know if I order something from this place that it will work. And I know what sizes to order and all of that. So I really like White House Black Market because they're my style. I kind of know what sizes and how things fit and how they're cut. And I think it's generally good quality. So I really like to order from there. And then... um, I just, I don't do a huge amount of shopping. Like I'll do the stuff from Amazon, but even then I don't order a whole lot of stuff all that often. So I would probably have to say White House Black Market for like online clothes shopping. Okay. So my online clothes shopping go-to is Banana Republic. And it's for all the same reasons. It's like, I know what size I wear. I know the fit. Their returns are easy as long as you pay attention because when they're looking at their clearance stuff, like some clearance stuff is still returnable. And other clearance stuff is final sale. So I never buy final sale things because I'm always like, that's going to be the one thing I put on. And I'm like, ah, this is the reason why it was on final sale. Yeah. (laughs) But for clothes, Banana Republic. And then I totally love Amazon for things that amazingly show up my my doorstep and I don't have to drive 15 minutes into town to get. So (laughs) what about you, Abby? My sort of go-to if I'm looking for something like pretty cool or different is anthropology because... 
I'm kind of short. And so being 5'1", it's really hard to find things that fit, particularly dresses because the waist comes down to my hips. So it's really nice because anthropology has some pretty cute dresses that are petite. And so, and there's not a lot of people left that really do petites anymore. So, um, but I will say like um, Banana Republic and J. Crew also have some petites as well, which is really nice. So those are kind of my favorite clothing stores. And then I'm always looking for a bargain. So, you know, it depends on what I'm looking for. I always like to shop online and you know, you can find promo codes sometimes, like if you're ordering something from somewhere, if you look for promo codes, you can get like 15 or $20 off. It's just like free money. So oh, I love looking for promo codes. That's my fun thing that I like to do when I have time, which most of us don't have a lot of time right now. So anyway, moving on to our question of the day, Susan, do you have a question of the day for us? Yes, we're going to do a couple of them today. So the first one is... When explaining fertility issues for older women, you talk a lot about chromosomal abnormalities as one of the major causes for miscarriage and difficulties achieving pregnancy through IVF. Could you clarify if it is the woman's ovum that contained the chromosomal abnormalities after the egg matures prior to ovulation, or do the chromosomal abnormalities occur during the process of fertilization? That's a good question. I hear this question and I just hear like, Carrie's mind. Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. Sorry, just want to give great little examples of <laughs> something usually relating to food. So I don't think I've got any food examples for this one, but I can hear, I just finished revamping all of my med student lectures for the course that I'm the director of this year. And so like a lot of this is on the top of my head. So probably the simplest way to think about this and answer this is to know that your eggs have been sitting in your ovaries in deep storage since before you were born. And they, they just hang out there and there is no mechanic in there. And so that part becomes important later because these chromosomes are in there and they're fully paired up until the time that you ovulate. And so they're in deep storage forever and ever on men. And then in the roughly two to three months prior to ovulation, they start to come out and be more accessible to the brain hormones that then tell them to grow and release. And so once you have that egg that comes out of deep storage and is now accessible, ultimately those chromosomes need to separate out. So you have 23 pairs and half of each pair gets thrown out with the garbage because you want to have in your child half of your chromosomes and half of whoever's providing sperm's chromosomes. So they get that final set of instructions to release. And at that point, the chromosomes need to separate so that the egg can be divided and all of the machinery within the egg, as well as those 23 chromosomes can be released. But when they've been sitting in there a really long time, there's no mechanic putting WD-40 on the joints that connect those two halves of the chromosomes. And so those two halves look at each other and they go, well, she's my best friend and has been for the past 40 years. So screw y'all. <laughs> and they run away together. And so that means that you can have them either running away together to the egg that's ovulating, meaning you're going to get too many chromosomes in the final embryo that forms, assuming it gets fertilized, or they can run away in the opposite direction, meaning you have too few chromosomes. And sometimes that happens in different way in multiple pairs. So you can conceivably see an embryo that has too many of chromosome number, you know, pair six and too few of chromosome pair number 18. And the end result is an embryo that just doesn't have the right complement 
of genes because the body and embryos are very sensitive to that. And if you don't have the right pairings, you're going to lose out. And it's ultimately good that the body is sensitive to that because pregnancy is not a risk-free state, but that's kind of how you get the too many and too few. Could somebody just ovulate and we could harvest their eggs and just test the eggs to see how good they look? So I'm sure you could, but the problem is <laughs> testing one cell means you use up the cell and it gets axed. There's nothing left. <laughs> and there's nothing left. And so you could test the cell, but it would be information for the sake of information. And IVF is just too involved to do that. And so nobody does that. Now, you know, in my dream world, I've got a ton of fantasies of like, okay, well, you can use this technology and this technology and this technology to see this, that, and the other thing but none of them have hit fruition at this point. And so as a result, we just go purely by the beauty contest. Does it look like it's mature? If so, great, we'll give it a shot. And if it doesn't, then we know it's not going to mature because it doesn't have the right machinery. So it's not until you put it together with the sperm that we can actually test and make sure that there's the right number of chromosomes. Right, because you're going from that one egg cell and that one sperm cell to a mature, typically blastocyst is what we're testing these days. It's very rare that we test a cleavage stage embryo because it doesn't, it just doesn't have very many cells to work with, and that causes problems down the line. But with a blastocyst, you've got you know typically about 150 to 300 cells, and you take out four or five of them, and um, no harm to the blast, at least none that we concretely know of, and you get the information you want. You still have a very usable embryo. It's the same issue with the sperm. A lot of people will say, well, you know, is there something wrong with my husband's sperm? Can we genetically test it? Same thing. It's a one cell thing and you can test it, but then you damage the sperm. There's no way to really pick sperm that we think is good. And typically the reason why the egg is more to blame is because as Carrie mentioned, the egg's been there your whole life, whereas your husband makes sperm every 72 days. And so the sperm we think is probably younger and better able to have the right number of, of cells. So usually it is the egg, unfortunately. All right, let's do one more question. This listener says, I've had three miscarriages at seven weeks and nine weeks in 2020 in a 17 week, which was devastating. My husband and I are healthy and active people. He is 37. Since our last miscarriage, we have had no luck to conceive. I had my miscarriage workup was all normal, except I have a bicornuate uterus. After having a T-U-S-H-Y workup, which I'm not sure what that is, ladies. Do y'all are y'all familiar with that term? No, I don't know what that is. I'm not used to that acronym. We usually call it RPL, but I'm guessing it's probably about the same. Okay. Yeah. So after having tissue workup, my RI said that <laughs> she is unaware why we are having problems trying to conceive. We have had a surgery planned to remove the septum in February to prevent any miscarriage. I was told I cannot use fertility enhancing medications such as Clomid. What are your thoughts on this? The next option would then be IVF, which is expensive. I feel like my last option, I'm scared to do it and have not any other miscarriage. My husband had a normal sperm count, did genetic testing, which is normal, except for a carrier for congenital amaurosis and neuronal ceroid lipofusionosis. What do you think my chances are having IVF successfully? So I'm a little confused. She said she had a bicornea uterus, but then she said she's going in for repair of a septum. So that sounds more like a septate uterus to me. Well, I, I think we all have to understand that Mullerian anomalies are anomalies of the reproductive system, specifically of the uterus. They can be gradations on the theme. So, you know, especially if we have that new grading system that you can essentially have a bicornuate uterus with a septum. And it sounds like her doctor's wanting to go and repair part of the uterus. We don't have 
her age, I'm not quite understanding why you can't use fertility enhancing medications after fixing the uterus. The big issue with women who have uterine malformations is just you don't ideally want them to get pregnant with anything more than one baby. If you have a uterine abnormality, you're already at a higher risk for preterm labor, preterm delivery, and just the cervix sometimes can't be as strong. So I suspect that that's probably why her doctor's worried about using, you know, Clomid. Now, Clomid's five to 10% chance of twins, but you know, I guess it depends on how strictly you want to try and prevent twins. I would be very against using gonadotropins. Yeah, I agree. I would use Clomid. I think with appropriate counseling, you know, I think, like she said, IVF is really expensive. And, you know, if you're kind of willing to take that risk, I think with appropriate counseling, it's probably a reasonable choice. I wonder if the other factor there is just what we talked about in the earlier question. Maybe her doctor thinks, well, she's had all these miscarriages. She had a 17-week loss. Maybe we need to move on to IVF at this point after all these losses and genetically test the embryo to give her the best chance of pregnancy and to give her a better chance of just having a single baby. So it may be a combination of factors as to why she, her doctor recommended IVF. I would say this is the time that you call your doctor and make an appointment and you and your partner and your doctor sit down for 20, 30 minutes and just sit down and talk through all of these issues because there's so many things going into this decision-making that everybody needs to get on the same page. And so I think we need to have that conversation so that the doctor knows where you're coming from and you know where the doctor's coming from as well. Do the surgery first, figure out what your uterus looks like, and then go from there and see what the ultimate story is. All right. So we're going to continue on. Last week, we recorded kind of our, what we called IVF part one, where we talked about testing for IVF and kind of what's involved with all that as you're preparing for IVF. And so today we're going to sort of add to that and sort of call this IVF part two, what you need to know about stimulation and the the drugs that are used um, during stimulation and just kind of give you an overview of kind of what to expect. So Susan, you want to start out and tell us a little bit about what someone should expect if they're just about to start medicines for IVF? So the first thing to expect is that just because your friend had something done does not mean that you're going to necessarily have the exact same thing done. I always say there's an art to art or assisted reproductive technologies. There are many, many, many ways that we can go about stimulating you. And so what we're going to try today to do is talk about some of the medications, some different ways that people do things, but realize that when you're going to see your doctor, people are really trying to tailor make what's going to be the best stimulation for you. And so there's lots of ways to do this. There's lots of things that are going into our strategic planning when we're going into this. So that's one of my biggest things is realize that there's lots of ways to skin this cat. So generally speaking, most stimulations are going to involve injectable medications. You know, everybody's always worried about, oh no, the needles, but the needles are not that bad. Abby and I have both been through this. Yeah, they're not that bad. These are little subcutaneous injections. The anxiety before the first injection is the absolute (laughs) worst. Even if you're a doctor, there's anxiety before the first injection. (laughs) Exactly. And once you get past that one, you're going to be like, oh, okay, this really isn't that bad. You'll be cooking dinner eventually and you'll go, I got to get my shot. And you'll just pull your shirt up and, you know, do what you need to do and give your shot and go right back to cooking dinner. But the first few are a little bit, you know, bigger, like, let me get everything laid out, make sure I'm doing the right stuff, but it gets easier. Exactly. So Carrie, 
tell us a little bit about um, some of the medicines. And like Susan said, you know, there's lots of different ways to stimulate patients and different physicians do better with different protocols. What are some of the medicines that some of the patients may have to use when they're doing stimulations? So one of the more common ones is FSH. And FSH is a hormone that your body produces called follicle stimulating hormone. And there are a couple of different brand names for it. Folistim is a, a really common one. Gonalef is the other really common one. Sometimes you can find compounded FSH. Like there's, there's a, a variety of different ways of FSH, but it is all really pretty similar. Some docs will have their favorites. They really like one over the other, but the general umbrella is FSH. And what FSH does when it's produced naturally by your brain is those brain hormones talk to the ovaries. They tell the group of eggs to start growing and they support one to grow. So when you have just a natural cycle, no meds, no nothing, you get enough FSH to make one follicle grow big and strong and the rest die off. When we're doing an IVF cycle, our goal is to get as many of these guys to grow as possible. And so we're giving you higher amounts of FSH so that we can support all these little suckers to grow. And so FSH is always given by injection. And the reason a lot of these are, are given by injection is because um, these steroid hormones don't make it through the stomach. You can't just take them in a pill because the stomach will destroy it. And that's great for the stomach, not great for an IVF cycle. So that's why we tend to use these as injections is because we get better responses by doing that. And the medications are just chewed up by stomach acid. So FSH, Falstim, Gondolaf, those types of meds are the ones that we see most commonly. Okay, Susan, name another IVF drug that someone may use. So another IVF drug is Minipure, which is also another injectable hormone, and it has FSH and LH activity, which are the two hormones the brain produces that tells the ovaries what to do. I tend to use Minipure in conjunction with one of those other medicines, the Gonalef or the Folistim. I think there's some reasonable data that says if you add some or some to half <laughs> of Minipure, you tend to have a little bit better stimulations and, and things like that. Minipure is very, very helpful when we're working with women who have kind of some abnormalities in their hypothalamus and how their hypothalamus and their pituitary gland all kind of talk to each other because we need to have both components. That's another medication that is often used. Sometimes people will just use Minipure. Like again, this is one of those, like people do all kinds of combinations and some people don't use any Minipure. Yeah. And one of the things that we'll do sometimes in place of that is we'll do a hormone, use a hormone called HCG and it's less expensive. And for some patients, it kind of accomplishes the same thing as a Minipure, but it's not, we just do it every other day. So it's, and, and it tends to help. We feel like it tends to help the maturity of the eggs sort of in the same way Minipure may do that as well. Carrie, do you use HCG or do you use Minipure at all? I typically use more Menopure. Um, I have used HCGs in a pinch in the past, but my default tends to be more Menopure. So name another drug, Carrie, that we might use when we're doing an IVF cycle. So another one that we might do to get some additional reaction in the form of FSH and LH is going to be Clomid. And Clomid and Letrozole are two other, they're oral medications. They are most commonly associated with IUI cycles, but they can have their place in IVF cycles. I would say that they're usually not the default for most practices. Usually they're a secondary medication because 
they give a lesser response than what you're going to get with the injections. But there's a place for both of those in bumping up the natural response of FSH and LH without having to use the more expensive gonadotropins um, or FSH and LH injectable meds. And with letrozole in particular, we use that a lot in patients who we have a good reason for wanting to keep their estrogen levels low. So I think breast cancer patients is the most common one. And we'll give letrozole throughout the cycle to keep their estrogen levels low while still getting good follicular development. So those are two additional medications that we sometimes use in order to boost egg growth. I kind of think of clomid and letrozole kind of our ends of the spectrum. So the people that you really want to keep those estrogen levels down or people with diminished ovarian reserve that sometimes the combination of orals and injectables together gives them that little extra boost that just the injectables on its own, for some reason, don't work. I've, I've had a number of people who I'll give maximum doses of gonadotropins and I can't get anything to grow. And I drop the gonadotropins and add in letrozole and Clomid and I start getting follicles and eggs. So yeah. it can be a nice tool. So a couple of other drugs that probably you'll be on one or the other. So there's a group of drugs called antagonists that are either Centrotide or Ganarelics. And then there's another drug called Lupron. And so the thing about IVF is kind of, I think as carrier, I think Susan said this, we try and stimulate a year's worth of eggs at one time. And so as your body starts to stimulate a big, big group of eggs, the problem is your brain starts to go, huh, something's going on here. There's too many eggs being stimulated. And so your brain wants to secrete that trigger hormone, luteinizing hormone to make you ovulate. And that kind of can be disastrous to our cycles if we go in and some of the eggs or all of the eggs have ovulated before we've gone in to retrieve them. So we either use an antagonist, which is centrotide or ganarelics, which prevents your brain from making the luteinizing hormone or actually blocks it. And then there's another hormone called Lupron, which can be used in a couple different ways. So don't get too confused by this. But if you're using it to prevent a patient from ovulating, you started on day 21 of the previous cycle to downregulate their brain to get their brain from even producing the luteinizing hormone. So you'll probably be on one of those. I get the impression that most people primarily do antagonist cycles now. Um, it has some beneficial effects on the side effects of, of hyperstimulation, which has been a big problem for us for many years. So I get the sense that more people are doing antagonist cycles than day 21 Lupron cycles. But those are a couple of drugs. You're probably going to be on one or the other. And speaking of trigger drugs, Carrie, what trigger drugs would patients be taking during their IVF cycle? So one trigger drug is HCG. And that's got a couple of different brand names to it, but it all boils down to the same thing. And the reason we use HCG is because it's an analog or kind of a duplicate of LH. And in order to ovulate, you need a surge in that hormone. So it shoots up really high. Um, so we use HCG. The other medication that we can use is, again, that Lupron. So Lupron is, like Abby said, there's a bunch of different uses for it. And when we use Lupron in the purposes of a trigger, we capitalize on the fact that when you give Lupron in a larger dose all at once, it tells all of the LH in the pituitary to release. So you get this surge and it mimics the LH surge to produce ovulation. One of the real bonuses of this is that once you get that surge, it tells everything to shut down. And so particularly in patients where we're getting a high response, a Lupron trigger is very valuable because when you give just an HCG trigger in a high dose, that HCG lingers for a long time and can predispose you towards hyperstimulation. When you give the LH trigger, it gives you that boost and then shuts everything down so that you get the desired effect and you prevent a lot of the negative impacts that you can have from 
hyperstimulation. So Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit, unless you can think of any other drugs, tell us a little bit about how the stimulation cycle starts. I was going to talk a little bit about hyperstimulation after Carrie was talking about that. Sometimes after you go through your egg retrieval, so it's still kind of part of the egg retrieval process, but afterwards, sometimes we give some additional medications to keep you safe if you happen to be a high responder. And sometimes we'll add in some of that cetratide or ganarelics that we talked about earlier that help prevent you from ovulating, but this time it's helping kind of squelch down hormones and also an oral medication called cabergoline. It's a, a little pill used to help with prolactin levels, but we found that the two of those medications put together when used kind of the week after egg retrieval can help decrease the risk of hyperstimulation syndrome. So if your doctor's worried about your big response, high estrogen levels, that's something else that can be given. All right. Any other drugs you can think of, Carrie? There's one other way to give Lupron that can be sometimes be beneficial, and that's a Lupron microdose flare. And I use this most often when I have someone who's got a lower response or a suboptimal response to other medications. But in a Lupron microdose flare, you give just a little bit of Lupron throughout the cycle, again, to enhance the pituitary's release of your own FSH and LH. And so it's given in a small enough dose that it capitalizes on that release effect, but does not shut everything down. So this is different than the slightly larger dose that's given for a suppressive cycle where you started on day 21. And it's also different than the large dose that you give at the time of trigger that releases everything all at once with nothing left in the tank. One additional thing that I'd like to add about the Lupron is if you are using it as a suppressive agent or as the stimulation agent, as Carrie just described, you really can't use it as your trigger agent. Yeah, it's either or. <laughs> it's either or. So your, your doctor's trying to kind of balance the risks and benefits of all these medications in your specific situation. So just be aware that if you're using it early on, we can't use it to help prevent hyperstimulation syndrome. Yeah, and I would just add too with the microdose Lupron flare up until probably five or seven years ago, that was the go-to protocol for women who didn't have a lot of eggs and were poor responders. And so, you know, that's one of the challenges that we have when we're trying to stimulate patients is that sometimes they just don't stimulate, even though we give them all these drugs and really try and push the ovary. So sometimes in some patients that don't respond to cycles with antagonists, sometimes they'll respond a little bit better to that microdose Lupron flare protocol. So, well, we've had a very good discussion of all the drugs of IVF. Any last things that you guys want to add? Sometimes pretreatment with estrogen ahead of time or a birth control pill can be helpful to suppress cyst formation. So especially when you've got somebody who's got decreased ovarian reserve and they're more inclined to have FSH levels that get pushed higher earlier than we want them to, we can use either birth control pills or estrogen as a suppressive technique. Sometimes cetratide has a place or a the GNRH antagonists, cetratide, anagon, generalics, all those have a place in that. That's one other set of medications that we sometimes use. You're good. All right. Well, great. To our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a like or a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what want to hear. And as always, the podcast is intended for entertainment and not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you all soon. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.